Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast, Episode 12. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, I'm pleased to have Dr. Frank Vandermeer as my guest. Dr. Vandermeer is a professor at the University of Calgary School of Veterinary Medicine. His specialty is in veterinary virology, and today he joins me to talk about viral calf diarrhea, and specifically, a bit more about rotavirus and coronavirus. Let's get started. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Good evening. Happy to be here. That's great. Uh, Maybe we could start by having you tell the audience a little bit about your background and uh, where you're from and what you do. So originally I'm from the Netherlands and that's probably where my accent comes from and cannot get rid of that. Uh, In 2008, we decided to uh, move to Canada to join uh, the the new veterinary school in Calgary. And I'm... uh, um, from Holland, my background is not really farm. Uh, I don't have a farm background, but my father was a rose grower. So we had the cutting uh, flowers in our greenhouses and uh, we sold them on the market. Um, but I decided to become a veterinarian and uh, I uh, focus on uh, production animal health. And then later on, I uh, did some horse work for three years um, and uh, decided at some point I want to uh, do some work, uh, more work in uh, in the bovine area. And for whatever reason, I got in contact with the virologist at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I was working in their labs and I enjoy, enjoyed that a lot. So I decided to spend the rest of my career on viruses. So that's how it all happened since, what is it, uh, 1998 or so. I'm uh, busy with viruses and I'm still enjoying it. Nice. And and when did you move to uh, Calgary, Frank? What year was that? Uh, that was 2008. So 2008. yeah, just before the new veterinary school started in Calgary, uh, we came over and uh, we are here from the beginning. Well, we are glad that we got you and Karen here in Canada. It's great to have you. And uh, we want to talk about uh, viral causes of diarrhea here, but let's let's step back a little bit first and talk about neonatal calf diarrhea in general a little bit. So first of all, how important is it as a disease in cow-calf herds in Canada? Yeah, so uh, uh, scours or neonatal diarrhea um, is always in in the top of the diseases that a pre-weaned calf uh, can encounter and actually can die off. So if you just look at the numbers, they vary wildly, of course, depending on uh, uh, many factors such as the weather or management or uh, what kind of breed of cows you have or what production system. Um, but they are always in about 5 to 6% of the calves will experience at any given year scours and that can go up very high um, if if you're unlucky and you have a large herd for example and you get an introduction of one of these pathogens it can go uh, uh, like wildfire if you don't manage that well That's so it's, it's really important together with some respiratory tract infections right and and it can be 
a pretty labor-intensive uh, operation once you get Absolutely. a bunch of calves yeah. sick and you have to treat them yeah. and deal with that. That's uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah, these these are very young animals, and if if you don't treat them well or and and quickly, then they will just escape you and they will probably uh, die of scours and 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 get completely dehydrated because of that. So what are some of the pathogens that cause neonatal calf diarrhea? What are some of the bugs that we worry about? There's viruses, bacteria, and parasites here Absolutely. in the picture. Yeah, so I can paint you sort of picture. We have E. coli, and, and, and recently that was talked about uh, with uh, Dr. Homorowski from Fedag uh, Health Service in Energy. She uh, also listed them all, so rotavirus, coronavirus, um, some cryptosporidium as a uh, parasite or protozoa disease. But apart from that, we also find some clostridium in, uh, in, in, in the sample that we receive. And um, yeah, obviously the E. coli, Rota, Corona are always on top of everybody's list, but there might be something else out there that we are interested in. And as infectious disease person, I always want to see if we can find more in these samples. And Clostridium is always uh, popping up for whatever reason. There are other viruses implicated um, uh, in the past. We don't really know what kind of role they play. Um, so we disregard them as maybe not so important, um, but uh, we can't totally exclude that they play a role in, in the whole disease process. So if a veterinarian gets called out to look at somebody's calves that have diarrhea or they bring them into the clinic, can they tell just by looking at it whether it's a viral infection or a parasitic infection or a bacterial infection? And I guess we should say sometimes these are mixed infections too, right? So yeah. it would be a combination of things. Can you tell just by clinical presentation? No, that 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 is pushing it. I, I wouldn't dare to do that. Um, we also see that there is a lot of overlap in the time frames that these pathogens actually play a role. Obviously, E. coli is generally very early on. So a couple of days after calving, you will see watery diarrhea and then E. coli is mainly the culprit. Um, then let's say a week or, week or two weeks, maybe even longer, uh, the viruses play a role. So the rota and coronaviruses are then the dominant one. But it doesn't exclude that E. coli still can play a role in these calves or even the combination of the two. And then you're really sore, of course. That's the moment that these calves will become really um, bad and, and suffer the, the consequences of that co-infection. Um, when Clostridium actually is on its peak, I honestly don't know. That's parts that we are still studying. And the parasites take a little bit of time before they really get established and replicate in high enough numbers that they actually can become uh, disease-causing. So um, E. coli is really quick. Uh, e. coli, sorry, uh, the, the rota coronaviruses are generally a little bit slower, but we have seen calves with rotavirus infections within the first week uh, that we could uh, pick it up in the scour samples that we received. So don't exclude anything. And especially when you have combinations, that's a double whammy right there. So let's focus specifically on your specialty, the viral causes of diarrhea. And what do we know about the viruses? Are there tons of different strains. We should say that this coronavirus is different than the human coronavirus. It's in the same family, but it's a different different virus altogether. What 
what do we know about those strains in cattle? Yeah, so coronaviruses are um, obviously uh, very interesting to me because that's what I did my PhD on. Um, not on the bovine coronaviruses, I have to admit, but I think the viruses can change so rapidly and are so widespread that every calf uh, will encounter a coronavirus. That's almost a given. Recently, we did a preconditioning trial and we evaluated the antibody titers in the calves that we had. And from basically the first sample that we took uh, around uh, spring processing, Till the end, we saw high levels of antibody titers. So it, it's pretty much a given that coronaviruses will hit your calves. Now, there's a couple of different coronaviruses. One will be more focused on the respiratory tract, and some can be more in the uh, GI tract. But we don't even know whether or not these coronaviruses are anyway similar. So are the ones that are affecting your GI tract the same as will cause respiratory tract infections? That's part of the things that we try to find out. Um, what these viruses do, and that is similar for rota and coronavirus, is that they affect your GI tract cells. So your uh, uh, small bowel will consist of about, uh, uh, sort of... Uh, fingers uh, that are attached to the, the the GI tract. And on top of these fingers are the most mature uh, cells, the enterocytes, how we call them. And on the, the place where your fingers hit your hand or are fixed to your hand, that's the place where the youngest cells are. So new cells are uh, close to your hand and they grow slowly up your finger until they reach the top of the fingers of these, and we call them phyllae. And then they will dislodge and disappear. Now, so the mature cells are on the top, and those are the ones that are affected by both corona and rotavirus. So if you get an infection with rotavirus and or coronavirus, they will affect those particular mature cells. And that is a little bit of a problem because these mature cells are the most important. They will process food, they have enzymes, they have the best resorption capacities and all these other uh, properties that you really need to uh, get the most nutrients out of the food that you absorb, the milk or colostrum in this case. Um, that means that when that is uh, 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 removed, um, you end up with very young cells that are unable to do that. And um, that leads to scours. And uh, because there's malabsorption, you don't absorb your food properly. That stays in your GI tract that starts to uh, be processed there instead of getting absorbed. And then you can imagine that that will lead to all kinds of uh, uh, nutrients that interact with one another. It, 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 it's not necessarily the best outcome of your uh, attempt to digest food. Um, they are hugely variable. These viruses are um, uh, RNA viruses. So their uh, nucleic acids are consisting of RNA, uh, just like the human coronaviruses. And as we know from recent experience, these human coronaviruses and the bovine coronaviruses change very rapidly. So we have different strains. And that also is similar for rotaviruses. 
So rotaviruses are a little bit, but a little bit like influenza. And as we know, we always call influenza H1N1 or something in that line. And because we, and we do that because they are highly variable. They have different parts of the, uh, of the virus, uh, the H and the N in this, in influenza case. But in case of a rotavirus, it's the G and the P. So we have a separate, several set of G's and P's. These are the outer parts of the virus and they can fluctuate massively. Just like influenza, the, the genome is, is consisting of little, uh, some segments which can exchange very quickly um, amongst uh, uh, themselves. So you can have a recombination and have, end up with a completely different virus. And that has consequences, of course, in the way that we can respond or cows can respond to these viruses. So if you're very variable and you have be, if you're resistant to one virus, doesn't mean you're resistant to all viruses. So you can get reinfected uh, over time, multiple times. And in general, would you, the, I would say that the coronavirus infections tend to be a little more severe than rotavirus. Is that true? Um, I, I don't know too much. I never did experimental infections with them, so I cannot really comment on it in that way. What I know from coronavirus is that they not only affect the small bowel, but also the large uh, intestine uh, parts. So they have a more wide effect. Um, whether that always is more uh, 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 disease-causing is not something I can really comment about because I don't have that uh, clinical experience with these two viruses. Yeah, I think I think that's what we've seen more commonly. Coronavirus infections tend to be a bit more severe. Okay. It it is tough to sort out what's going on sometimes because they're often mixed infections. But yeah, but yeah. I think because of that large bowel infection, it it seems to be a little more severe disease in those calves that have coronavirus. And if it's more extensive, you can expect a longer recovery period as well. So that might also play a role in that. It takes longer for those cells to heal in the intestine. Yeah. So obviously these calves are losing more than just fluid. They're losing electrolytes and all sorts of other things. And, and so um, I guess maybe just a brief comment, and I know that, that you're not doing clinical treatments of calves or anything like that, but, but what does it mean in terms of how to treat these calves with viral diarrhea? I always, uh, one of my colleagues says that they always have a fluid deficiency, not an antibiotic deficiency. <laughs> yeah, in, in principle, antibiotics don't do anything in these animals. Uh, they, they are not able to limit the replication of viruses. They Honestly, they, they are, have totally no use um, in a viral infection. Um, if you suspect that there is a bacterial component in the whole disease process and the best way to figure that out is if you get a septicemia, so you see animal be not only have GI issues, but more central uh, disease issues as well. That's the moment that an antibiotic plays a role. I, I totally agree with your colleague. Uh, fluids are the most important thing. And and I've the only things I read, but never do myself, um, is that People advise or keep them giving, uh, or so keep keep giving them milk or anything that has a lot of energy in it, because that's what they need. They need to um, recover. They need to be able to uh, 
create those new cells. They need to be able to fight off the virus infection uh, or any other infection they're dealing with. Um, and therefore, they need energy. And that energy, we have to provide them. So uh, not giving them milk or not giving them colostrum would just backfire. For sure. And some of those really severe infections uh, that are really severely dehydrated or have major electrolyte imbalances, they may need intravenous fluids. They may need more serious treatment than we can do on the farm sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. If they cannot absorb themselves anymore, not drink themselves, then uh, we have to give them uh, through another route. Well, let's talk about the vaccines a little bit. And and we had Dr. Homoroski on here a few episodes ago, and she gave us some great information on the importance of having a calving management system and making sure calves get colostrum and all those sort of things about preventing neonatal diarrhea. We talked a little bit about vaccination in that episode. What do we know about the effectiveness of these vaccines that we use to prevent viral neonatal calf diarrhea? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, um, I struggle a lot with that because you always want to say, well, vaccines work and they are effective and they solve all your problems. And that would be the ideal world. But unfortunately, this is one of these vaccines where we cannot say that. We don't know the effectiveness of that. So how good are they in preventing disease in calves? And well, there's multiple reasons why this uh, actually is, uh, is a problem. First of all, um, we tend to vaccinate the, the, the cows. So we have cows, heifers um, that are vaccinated. We try to induce an immune response in these animals. That immune response needs to re result in a good amount of high-quality colostrum with the right antibodies in it. So anti-rota, anti-corona, anti-E. coli, and sometimes even anti-clostridium um, antibodies. Um, those antibodies need to make its way into the colostrum because that's the only time that the calf actually can absorb them. And if they end up in the colostrum, the calf need to take them in and get them into uh, the calf system. So um, that's quite a route it has to take where a lot of things can go wrong. Um, first of all, the, what's the health of the cow? What is the health of the calf? Um, how likely is it that the cow will allow the calf to drink anything? If it's a heifer which doesn't know what happens to her, um, is it then uh, willing to give that calf an, a chance to uh, drink its colostrum. How many of these antibodies are actually making its way into the, the into the colostrum, um, and how well is the calf uh, able to absorb uh, that colostrum uh, uh, at the end of the day? So all these factors play a role in the way that these protection mechanisms need to take place, um, and and that's determining the effectiveness of these vaccines. Um, I haven't seen many uh, papers that discuss very effectiveness, high effectiveness of, uh, sorry, high effectiveness of these vaccines. Tough word for a Dutch speaker, <laughs> um, but I, I think the overall conclusion needs to be that uh, probably the E. coli component does something, and and uh, may assist in in. Uh, um, uh, uh, combating the E. coli infection. 
uh, whether corona and rotaviruses do something meaningful. I don't honestly know. So I cannot really say a definite yes or no. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say I hope so because I recently learned hope is is a postponed uh, disappointment. So uh, <laughs> I hope that it's more a uh, uh, effective uh, vaccine. But we also learned from vaccines with rotavirus components, for example, and coronavirus components, is that they are really tough because these viruses are sort of inside the body, but also outside the body in the GI tract. So they're not necessarily in the central system. and um, uh, to get a good amount of antibodies within the gut where these viruses actually infect is a very difficult job. And we don't know if that actually will always work. So a lot of caveats, a lot of myths, uh, uh, um, uh, holdbacks in, in my way of, of expressing my uh, my hope in this kind of uh, vaccine. Um but I think there is some room for improvement there, for sure. Well, and I think that's a good answer. Elizabeth and I discussed that as well and sort of said, we know that they're not a replacement for good management, that you still need to do all the prevention strategies because if you overwhelm the system, it's oh, yeah. they're not going to protect those caps. No, and, and it's a tool in your toolbox. And that's how you should look at it. It's not your final gold, uh, uh, golden bullet or silver bullet, whatever bullet it is. Um, it, it, it is one of the, the tools you have to your disposal. And I think um, that's how we should look at it. But your primary intervention should be management. And I think uh, Dr. Homorowski did a good job and great job actually in explaining all these concepts that I wasn't even aware of that they existed. So is is and, and basically they all come down to reducing pathogen exposure. And the, the lower the amount of pathogen is, uh, uh, viruses, bacteria that a calf is exposed to, the lower the chance that there's actually a risk that these scour cases will appear. And, and however you do that, as long as it's as clean as possible, you do a good job and that's part of the management. Right. And, and we should emphasize again that the cows are walking around with these pathogens in their intestinal tract, and they are the ones that are shedding it into the environment. Yep. So we can't completely prevent exposure, but we want to lower the load as much as we can. Yeah, and, and that's how these, these pathogens hang out. So um, th there are uh, always uh, shedders. There's always some animals infected. And for coronavirus, it's circulating almost constantly. We see antibodies all the time. So probably that keeps it uh, uh, circulating. Rotavirus, um, it, it, even if you're older, um, it doesn't mean you're not infectable anymore. So we, we see that calf uh, even on an older age than the two, three period, week period when scours happens are still infectable and can shed uh, these viruses. Also older calves, sorry, older cows can do that. And um, I think the the only thing that we have to keep in mind is, is that the, the tools that we have available uh, will not prevent the shedding of the pathogens, but only prevent the clinical outcomes of it. So that's where we need to strengthen the immune systems of these um, 
these cows as much as we can and in indirectly also the immune system of the calf which also reminds me that i forgot to say that these are generally killed vaccines so these are vaccines that are not replicating and uh, that also means that we need to booster them if you want a proper response to a killed vaccine there's always a booster involved with a few exceptions um, rabies vaccines for example sometimes work almost instantly but uh, that's a very rare exception so if you if you talk about scours vaccines and you don't booster in especially in the heifers in the young animals that have never been vaccinated before you cannot expect a proper immune response. So that's if you decide only to vaccinate heifers once. I, I honestly don't know if that would be doing anything for the scours prevention. So it's very good to follow that label claim. And it's not there for nothing. It, it's, it's, a, it's something that the, the producer of these vaccines have established as an effective way to induce antibodies in the circulation of these uh, heifers or cows in many cases. Yeah, we had a recent uh, study on vaccine use uh, in some of our uh, herds in our Canadian surveillance project. And and one of the things we did notice was there was a number of people that weren't boostering that in the heifers for the first time. So the first time those animals get those scours vaccines, they need two shots. And uh, if it's the whole herd, if it's the cows and heifers, the first time they're getting it, they've got to be boosted. If you've got an ongoing program, you're going to have to booster the heifers every year. And it's pretty important. You've got to read the label and get the timing right and all those things. Yeah, because that 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 uh, antibody production needs to be at its peak at the moment that your colostrum is produced, and that is not on the day of uh, uh, calving, because that's a lot of stress. And it's also good to know that making an antibody is not necessarily an easy job for a body. So if if I have to produce an antibody, it takes time. It's a very complex, pretty big molecule to put together. So if you vaccinate uh, an animal or a human and that has to result in an antibody, you have to give your body time to actually do that and also do the right antibodies. So not only just say antibody, but an antibody that actually is able to inactivate that stupid virus or bacterium or toxic uh, component that these bacteria produce and uh, able to, to eliminate it, so neutralize it. Right. And, and these are not just any antibodies. We need good antibodies, high quality antibodies. And that's what is meant with quality colostrum not only quantity but quality is important too so you're currently involved in a interesting uh field study you're leading the way on that one and looking at the causes of neonatal calf diarrhea in western canada can you tell us a little bit about that study and do you have some preliminary results you can share yeah some some of the things that we just talked about were playing through our brains and we i had some discussion with veterinarians uh um and and have a chat about what is in their minds, what is a big problem in on the in the field of scours and also on coronavirus specifically. And um, when I was doing some research on in the literature, it, it appeared to me that there was not a lot out there. So we had a lot of question marks on scours, on strains that are circulating in Canada. And 
to be honest, I had to really dig into the deep, deep archives to find anything on uh, on circulating viruses and bacteria um, that infect scours, whether it would be, or sorry, that cause scours, whether that would be in dairy or in beef herds. In Canada, I find it all over the place, but not here. So I thought it was time for an update. So what we do is we collect as many uh, samples from scouring calves and cow-calf herds. That's the start of the whole process. And the reason is, is first of all, what is out there? Is it the rotaviruses, the coronaviruses, the E. coli that causes the most problems? And not only knowing which pathogen, but also what strain of pathogen are we talking about? So what specific strain is causing the disease and how well does it relate to the uh, vaccine strains that we are currently having available? So we will do those comparisons and then uh, we consider that our phase one, um, knowing the strains that are circulating, the most dominant strains here. Um, the phase two will be a little bit more in that vaccination sphere. So we will vaccinate these cows and try to identify what antibodies are they actually producing against the scours vaccines. Um, and if we can then transmit that to calves, what do they end up with? Is that anybody reasonable, reasonable to expect that they can actually neutralize these viruses and, and the components of the bacteria that are causing scours? So um, learning a little bit about the mechanism behind that whole vaccination story that I, I just told you. Um, and then the third phase is more of a field study so that we can start looking at, okay, what is the practice? How many vaccines are provided? What does that end up with? How many antibodies or what quality antibodies are the resultant of that? Um, and how many of these antibodies end up in a calf? And how well do they get protected by that? So that hopefully... <laughs> uh, this is not a, a delayed disappointment, but hopefully that will be a very nice extended uh, study here in Western Canada, um, in which we can do a good under create a good understanding of our uh, scours vaccination program and how effective that actually is. So the last spring you were sending out sampling kits to producers to yep. sample. Uh, scouring calves. Are you still doing that this spring? I'm still doing that. I, I just started sending things out and contacting veterinary clinics. Um, also, producers that are interested are uh, very welcome to sign up. Uh, just can contact me or uh, if they contact you, you will hopefully send the information to me. Um, Frank.Vandermeer at ucalgary.ca is my email address and, and uh, everybody uh, that are, is interested in Western Canada, we take that very widely. We have samples coming in from Manitoba and BC, so anything in between that. It's totally fine if you want to participate. And what we normally do is if you send a package with uh, contains some sampling cups, um, uh, materials to uh, mail everything to paradiagnostic services in Saskatoon, and they will do the initial screen, so what's actually in it, uh, in these samples, and then send a uh, subsample to our laboratories for further analysis. And that generally takes a bit longer, but if, if um, people want the results out of the initial screen from PDS, we can always send that out. Uh, we have done that to pretty much everybody that I had an address from uh, because that's required if I need to contact them. 
Great. Well, I'll put your uh, email in the show notes so people can contact you if they're interested in participating in the study. Absolutely. Please do so. Thank you, Frank, for doing this today. Really appreciate you uh, taking part. It's uh, We're recording this in the evening and it's a polar vortex night. It's pretty cold out there. So <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you uh, leaving the fireplace and uh, uh, spending half an hour with me. So thanks again. That sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Okay. That's our show for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Frank Vandermeer from the University of Calgary School of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.